there's already sadness and joy for Leslie and I as we consider a transition in the ministry of the gospel. And this morning as I come to bring the word to you, I do just want to share with you all just the blessing that God's given us of being here at Cross Creek and how we have grown and how we've seen God's ministry at work through our lives and really evidence to us by the way that we've been loved by many of y'all and it's a blessing for us. At the same time, uh, a lot of y'all know it seems like it hasn't been that big of a surprise that I tell people that we've had this call to RUF because campus ministry has been on our heart. And last week I went down to visit uh, some of the students down there and actually teach them to a small group of students that are still gathering from another, uh, from an old ministry. And just spending that time with them and interacting with them about the gospel after I taught the word to them was just a, it was a beautiful blessing for us. And so there's a lot of joy for us right now, especially think about heading down to Mobile. Leslie's family is there. We look forward to the opportunity to be with them. And yet at the same time, it, it really is sad for us because our first call to ministry has been to Cross Creek. And we have counted that a, a blessing. Somewhere God has called us and where God has taught us many things. And where we've been blessed by just our relationships with you. And so I want to thank you all for that. And I want to ask you also to come and be with us as we continue this ministry. Because going out in ministry is not something that we do. It doesn't mean that we leave. It means that we go out together. And as we think about the glory and the beauty of kingdom work, it's that because it's in Christ, we go down to South Alabama on your behalf. And that's something that we really believe strongly and for this reason and, and for the burden of God's call in our life to minister to students, we actually have great joy and great excitement. And we would definitely seek your prayers and support as we pray and prepare for this. And the way that I would really like to ask you all to do this just this morning, as we, really, as we begin to think about this, and I know as it means some things for you all at Cross Creek, is that you all make our joy complete by taking hold of Christ. That you would know Him that you would bring him to other people, and that you would make the ministry of the gospel complete here at Cross Creek. And that would bring great joy for us as we go to South Alabama. And that's the greatest support that we could ask for. And I say that to you this morning because as we open up the word, that's the thing I long, for us, I long to happen for us. We're going to look at one John, first, uh, John 1 this morning. There's, one, there's first John, which I sometimes call one John. There's also John 1. We're going to look at John 1 this morning. As we come into this first season of this first weekend of Advent, and as we consider the coming of Christ, which is what Advent is about, we consider the incarnation of, of the redemption that's of the redemption, the incarnation of our redemption in Christ. Excuse me. And this is what I really want us to focus on as we come into Christmas time. You see, as we've come into Christmas year after year, it's a it, it's a holiday of great joy, isn't it? It's something that we look forward to. We look forward to, and we look forward to the celebration. And yet it's become a holiday that's all about our incessant consumerism, right? And our materialism. And in becoming this, I think we've robbed ourselves of the blessing of the greatest gift of all, which really is Christ. I remember as a child, I remember Christmas. Christmas was about anticipation. Y'all can probably remember it too. You remember the kind of lead up into the Christmas time. And all you could think about was that day when you got to finally open presents. And you, always, you anticipate, you look forward to it. And there's a lot of excitement that came around it. And as we open up the page of Scripture, as we open up John, we see that this is actually what Christmas is really about. It's about anticipation. You see, for Israel, when, they were, when Israel, before they had the Redeemer, all they could hope for, all they could look for 
was for when the Redeemer would come. And so they, would anticip- they were anticipating their own hope. They were anticipating the goodness of their salvation. And yet I fear that our youthful excitement, our youthful zeal that we have when we're children, when we look for those gifts, that it hasn't grown into full maturity. You see, when we were children, our anticipation for the present was supposed to slowly transform into anticipation and looking forward to Christ, wasn't it? You know, as we grow, what we've done and what we generally do is we put those things aside. And we say Christmas is for children. And we fail to truly mature into anticipation and looking forward to Christ. You see, Christmas becomes only about the stuff, only about the activity, and yet we fail to even see our Redeemer. We make very poor Israelites, I think. For we have such low expectations, such fading hopes of redemption, that this morning and this Christmas time I'd have nothing more than to see our hearts build up in the anticipation of the fullness of our redemption, which is made human in Christ. So with that in mind, let's open up the Gospel of John, because John brings us back to these things, and he whets our appetite for salvation. We'll read the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to his own people, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from this fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side, but He has made Him known. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, it's a blessing to come in and to be able to open Your Word. And yet, Lord, when we hear Your Word, when we read it, Lord, our ears and our eyes simply do not comprehend it at times. Lord, we want to believe You. We want to rest in You this Christmas time. We want to celebrate the joy of our salvation in Christ. And yet there are so many distractions in our lives. There are so many things competing for our attention, Lord. So many uh, idols, Lord, that would have us worship them instead of You. Lord, when we come to You this morning as we open Your Word, And we seek that you would put those things aside for us. Because our hearts are weak. Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit and you would work in us. That your word would move and shape and direct us, Lord. And that our eyes would see the glory of Christ. 
that our eyes would see the glory of our own redemption. Lord, and that our hope may be built up in truth and in the solid foundations of your Son who became flesh for us. Lord, we pray these things, asking them, pleading them in the name of Christ, Lord, our mediator. Amen. Well, where does the Christmas story begin? As every good thing goes, best stories start at the beginning, right? You see, John actually starts at the very beginning of all things as he brings us into this reality of the coming of Christ. And it echoes of Genesis 1.1 that he says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It says in the beginning was the Word, excuse me, and the Word was with God. And we get these echoes of Genesis 1.1, which I think is appropriate then for us to go back and look at what is he referring to? What is he talking about? Because this is actually the place where our Christmas time, where our holidays of celebrating the coming of our salvation really begins. Genesis 1, you're probably familiar with, is the story of creation. God creates all things of nothing in six, day, in six days, and then he rests on the seventh day, right? And he is told in this beautiful poetic imagery of how God makes these things, and he says, they're good, they're good, they're good. And there's this one point in creation where God comes to this culmination. And when God creates man, he does something a little bit different than he's done so far in the point of creation. When he creates man on the last day, he says, let us make man in our image. And after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. If you've heard, the, if you've heard Genesis 1 through 3, if you've heard him preach on any time, you probably remember that after God had created everything, it was good. But when he created man, it was very good. And it was very good because when God created man, he entered into this relationship with all of his creation. And he gave man, he gave us the likeness of God. He gave us the image of God. See, when God had shared part of himself, everything was good. But the sad part about Genesis, and really it's the sad part of all of our history, is that the story doesn't end there. Genesis 3 picks up. After God having made everything, after God giving us this relationship with him, this beautiful hope of being able to have fellowship with the God who can make all things, we see us decide to step out of that relationship. You see, we wanted more despite having everything. And so when the serpent comes along and he begins to tempt Adam and Eve, he pricks this desire for more, doesn't he? And despite the glory they had, they sin against God and do the one thing that God had prohibited them from doing. And they failed the test of faith. They had everything, and yet they doubted. They stopped believing, and the curse of that doubt has taken hold on creation ever since. And we get to the point in Genesis 3 after the fall, and if you want to, you can look back there. And God speaks this curse on creation. He speaks this curse on man, he speaks a curse on woman, he speaks a curse on the serpent. And he says in chapter 3, he says to the serpent first, he says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, on the, in the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he steps to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then finally he says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistle it shall bring forth. 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. As we read Genesis 3, we're brought to the reality that creation is broken by us. I don't know if we get how desperate the situation is. When I read Genesis 3, I kind of read it and I'm like, okay, so it works for me hard. Childbearing is going to be painful. And snakes don't have legs. And those are the three things I can conclude. I don't think we understand the desperation of the situation, the legacy of unbelief that picks up with Adam and Eve. You know, you want to consider it. This is what I suggest doing. Y'all have all had some history classes in school at some time, I would suppose, or you probably read some history books. Just try to take a small accounting of all the lives that have been lost to injustice in cre- since the beginning of creation. It's billions. I'm not just talking about the ones that have, that have gone because of old age, but I'm talking about injustice. It's in the billions. And all of this is because of what happened, because we failed to trust and to rest in God. The one who had given everything, the one who had entered a relationship with man. I was just reading recently Christopher Hitchens, part of Christopher Hitchens' book, Hitch 22. I don't know if y'all know who he is. He's kind of a famous atheist philosopher who speaks in kind of popular circles. He's actually done some debates here with different people here in Birmingham. And in Hitch 22, one of his kind of main premises, this is a biography of his life, and one of his main conclusions of his life is that religion is not just something that he just disbelieves, but he thinks it's dangerous. He thinks religion is bad, and he, his, his argument is that atheism should be better. And as I, was reading, as I was reading one of the passages, he just talks about some of the people he's interacted with. I began to understand what he was talking about. And I think he's actually kind of right, that religion is really dangerous. That all these things, that we, so when we look back to the beginning of creation, that they're a result of religion. But what they are is a result of worshiping anything but God. Or even of worshiping God incorrectly. See, I think he's right. Because what we've done is we've worshipped all these other things. And this is the destruction, this is the pain, this is the frustration that we feel. The beautiful part of Genesis, as we go back to it and as we kind of bridge ourselves back to John 1, is that... God doesn't end the story there. Because in Genesis, uh, when he's speaking the curse to the serpent, he actually remembers this relationship that he's had with man. And he speaks this promise to the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians, biblical scholars, they say this is the Proto-Euangelion, it's the first mention of the good news. You see, John's going back to this, that at the very beginning, God was still bringing hope into the world. When he draws our attention to the light, he is reminding us that he is not finished with his creation. He did not simply destroy the whole world. He said, I will still care for my people, I will still love them. And John brings us to that place this morning. And our call this morning is a simple one is to realize that what we need is still God. What we need is still God. And we need to believe in Him. And when we come to Christmas time, what we see is that God still brings His love and His care into the world when He brings us to Christ.
You see, there's no more looking to forbidden fruit. No more receiving corrupt lies. This day and each morning, what we're being offered, what we're being directed to is true light. And what John tells us about is who this light is. Who we come into Christmas to celebrate. And the introduction of John is telling us this. There are three things I want us to see. First, that John's telling us about the glow and the glory of heaven. That he's showing us that that which was in heaven, that which was there, is shining down on us. And he begins to tell us that then the darkness is being, is being bridged. That the gap of darkness between us and God is being bridged by the light. And then finally he begins to reveal to us the beauty of the burning light of Christ. The first thing we see is that there's a glow and glory of heaven. And that continues to shine on us. See, what's true about God and creation, unlike us, what was true for us in creation that we had this relationship with God, we, we, we messed up. We destroyed it. But what's true about God and creation, that He is beautiful, that He is good, and that He is true, it remains true after the fall. And that's the first thing that we need to see. Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it talks about creation, again, I think Paul talked about this in, in, the, uh, in our Sunday school. If you all haven't read the Shorter Catechism, it's helpful. It gives you kind of summations of doctrine, of things that we believe. And it asks this question about creation. It says, what is God's work of creation? And it provides this answer. That the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And I always thought it was interesting. I had to memorize this for different things that I've done through school and through the process of ordination. I always thought it was interesting that instead of saying that God created everything by the power of his word, it says by the word of his power. And the Westminster Divines, those are the folks that wrote this. They spent some time thinking about this. Why, I always thought, why did they ha- have this kind of moment of pause? Why didn't they say just the power of God's word? When we look at John, I think there's something that they probably were picking up from John. When they see that John is extracting something that gave them pause. And he says that God's power is not just power. That God's word is actually who God is. See, the first words of John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, it's that the Word is not just spoken, but it is someone. The Word is someone. It is God Himself. And John goes to great efforts to show us that the Word is preexistent, that it's before creation, that it wasn't something that was created, but it's the thing that actually did the creating. But not only that, the Word was with God, and it rests and abides in the glory of God. You see, the Word is God. And so in the beginning of the whole story, we see that this light of God is actually there interacting with creation, bringing it into being. And so God shares his glory. That's what we were talking about when we look back at it, that God shares his glory. But it's not just that. It's not just God's power. It's not just God's glory. But it's also a light of life. See, it's a life-giving light. What we have in Christ is the light that gives us life. And it comes from heaven. Notice how the life is described in this, in this passage. That it's the light of men. You see, this only comes together in the power of God and Christ. As all things culminate in God's revealing himself to mankind, the light is revealed through Christ. And the, despite the veil of darkness, as we look at the fall, as we consider the fall, what we see this morning and what John is drawing our attention to is that the light is still coming in. And that the darkness is being dispelled. I imagine a lot of y'all have seen Elf. I, I like Elf. It's a good Christmas movie. It's one of the ones that's kind of healthy. It doesn't really have much agenda or anything. It's just kind of clever. It's with Will Ferrell. And there's, it's pretty clean for that, for the most part, too. It's one that I wouldn't mind watching with my children. I'm sure a lot of y'all have seen it, too. And 
The story of Elf is actually about this guy who is a human, but he was raised by elves. And he's raised in the North Pole, and he comes down, he interacts with things. And you can kind of imagine there's, there's kind of uh, uh, there's a uh, gap between kind of the way that he can relate to people and the way that regular people relate to people. And he comes to New York City, which is actually what's comical. So it's Elf from the North Pole and all his kind of idealism. And the thing that's funny about him, and the reason I like the movie, is Elf is a person of infectious emotion. He comes down and he talks to people and he makes them laugh. And he doesn't really know that he's doing it, but he does it. Like, for example, when he's in his dad's office who's kind of just realized that this is his son and his dad thinks he's crazy and somebody calls his dad's office and he jumps up out of the, he jumps up out of the corner. He's sitting in the corner drinking a horrible cup of coffee. And he says, Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? <laughs> or another time he's actually he's talking to uh, the guy in Gimbal's, which is kind of like a Macy's. And uh, he's singing in the Macy's. And the guy goes, no singing in the North Pole. He goes, yes, there is. We sing all the time. No, there's not. Uh, And it's funny. (laughs) I can't deliver lines out of movies. I'm not very good at that, especially funny ones. I'm not a stand-up comic. Uh, Anyway, he says, and I mean, just kind of a good picture of kind of his thing. One of his mottos, he tells people, he says, the way to spread Christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear. And he kind of has this infectious thing. And everybody he goes around, he kind of lightens her mood. Slowly but surely, he lightens her mood. You know, as we open up the Word, as we look at this thing, I think that's one of the things that needs to happen for us at Christmas. Our mood needs to change, right? We come into Christmas with a lot of things bearing down on us. The end of the year, the end of the fiscal, the end of the fiscal year, I think, for a lot of folks. I haven't worked in business yet. You have that. You have, obviously, the, the need for all the presents, for all your family, and all those different things, the, the parties to get ready for. You know, and when we watch movies then like Elf and Miracle on 34th Street and Scrooge, we realize that these things, they aren't just actually, they aren't cliches that they're playing with, that people come into Christmas with a bad emotion. But see, they reveal to us something that's true, that we need things to change. Christmas time, and you just open the newspaper, and you see that we've made Christmas all about those things, right? I mean, you, if you looked at the newspaper on Thursday, it was all about the sales. Thanksgiving Day, day we have to be thankful for, and what they want us to focus on, what we actually have ourselves to focus on, is something else, right? We don't think about the things we have to be thankful for, but we think about all the things that we want. You know, we make, we make Christmas about the stuff. And we let Christmas be hijacked by capitalism. And the trickle-down effects tell us, uh, the trickle-down effect has effectively excised Christ out of Christmas. So the only Jesus that we know in Christmas time is the one that's sitting there in the manger, right? And we like that Jesus because the Jesus in the manger is small, it's lifeless, and doesn't really have to affect our lives. And that's just how we want him to be. We want Christ just to be that little thing up there on our, our own mantle. We don't want him to be a redeemer. See, John's telling us that Christ has got to be more than a carved figure. That Christ was more than just a figurine that we put on our mantle. We see that he's God. We see that he's a meteor of our hope and salvation. The thing that needs to happen is our mood needs to change. So we need to find the joy. See, in these things, in Christmas time, it is a time of celebration. It's a time of great joy. When we do these things and we light the candles and we have these traditions, we do this out of celebration, not just out of rote tradition, because we have Christ. You see, what we have is 
life in Christ. And that light is a, a light that reveals hope and glory for our salvation. But for Christ to come, he has to do something. Let's bring this to our second point. He has to bridge the gap of darkness. The image of light in the Old Testament, if y'all if, if y'all have done some study in the Old Testament, you'll, you'll see that the image of light is a very powerful image of who God is, of God's presence. For example, in the tabernacle, when God was setting up the tabernacle and he was giving directions for Israel to build the tabernacle, he told them all these things to do. And one of the things he told them to do is to build a lamp. This is actually what we know as the menorah. The, it's a seven-candle thing that was set in the middle of the uh, tabernacle. And the reason for that was, well, the tabernacle had a bunch of coverings on it. And what you, what you need is that even in the midst of a, a bright summer day in the middle of the desert, you still need a light in the midst of the tabernacle because of all these coverings. And that light served a purpose for the priests. One, it showed them what they were going to do. But it also served a symbolic purpose, that it, it reminded them that God was bringing light to their life. See, the tabernacle was a place where they did sacrifices, where they did all the things that reminded them of God's provision, of God's blessings. And so the, that, that light was supposed to remind them of who God is. And as we look at this verse, we realize that's exactly what God does. He gives us these lights over and over in history. That Israel, God would continue to give them these lights. And John the Baptist was actually one of those lights. John, directs, uh, John the gospel writer of John, directs our attention to John the Baptist to remind us that God is providing a light to reveal to us the true light. That's not confusing. I don't know what it is. But it's to reveal to us Christ and to pierce the darkness. Calvin points out in, our, in, in his commentary, John Calvin points out in his commentary in this passage, that the purpose of the lamp, that the purpose of these things, the purpose of the light, it wasn't to justify who God was. That God gives us this light, he gives us John, in order, in order to reveal to us who Christ is. That he gives it to us for our sake. See, Jesus didn't need someone to repair the way. We did. We needed our blinders pulled back so that when the light came, we could see the things in front of us. I don't know if you all thought about it, but if if you were blind, it wouldn't make sense to walk into a room and flip the light switch on, would it? It doesn't help you see. And what John realizes and what God realizes is that it wouldn't help him to simply reveal the light if our eyes were continued to be blind. And so he sends these mediators and he continues to remind and reveal to his people that I'm going to send my true light, and when your eyes are fully opened, you'll be able to see it. And so God begins to pull back the darkness so that we can see the beauty and the brightly burning light of Christ. Another TV show I like, I won't do any quotes from, is Lost. Have y'all, I'm sure a lot of y'all seen Lost. I've seen, I think, every single episode of Lost. And Lost, of course, is aptly named. One, because it's about these people on an island who are lost. But then two, because the whole time you're watching Lost, you're lost. You have no idea what's going on. It's kind of their strategic play that they only reveal to you bits of truth at different times. And usually it's seasons apart when you get the truth that connects any part of the storyline to give you any kind of meaning. And you're trying to remember what it was. So the whole time you're lost because you only get little bits of truth. You only get partial truth. And it reminds us that the thing is, is that when we get partial or corrupted truth, when we get partial or corrupted light, it doesn't give us everything we need, does it? It leaves us longing. It leaves us hoping. And that was kind of the method of loss. They kept you watching because they kept you longing for more. See, you only get snippets of truth 
This is how Satan actually deceives Adam and Eve in the garden, isn't it? He gives them just partial truth, and he adds to it even a little bit. Satan, when he was talking to Eve in the garden, he says, Didn't God say not to eat of any tree in the garden? When God had only said, Don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. And what that kind of small, perverse truth does is it changes Eve's mind. It changes the way that she's thinking. And so when she responds to Satan, she also perverts what Satan said. I mean, she perverts what God says. And she says, no, he, he said just don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. And these partial and half-truths begin to distort the full beauty of their salvation that God had been giving them. That God has loved them and that God had cared for them. And so John makes this distinction for us that we remind ourselves who Christ is, that he is, in fact, the true light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. That's what John says. And he makes this distinction for us between the true and the false light. And the reason he does that is because there's a lot of false lights competing, right? There's a lot of false truths competing with us. As we talk about each of these things, that's what they are. When we talk about the materialism, the consumerism, the things that come in and try to interject and point us away from Christ, what they are is they're false lights. I'm not saying they're bad things. But what they're trying to do is point us to something other than Christ. Especially the way that we approach them. We think of these things as being better than what they are. We think of them as being having redemptive power when the only thing that has redemption is Christ. The very thing that we need to be seeing this morning. We can't ignore light. When our eyes are open, when your eyes are open right now, you can't ignore light. Even when you close your eyes, you can still see it in the background. You know, the difference between like putting your hand in front of your eyes, you can still realize that you, there's still light in front of you. You can't ignore the light. But what we can do is we can reject it. And that's what, and that's what John reminds us of. That the fall our first, was our first rejection. With it, everything collapsed. Man didn't look to God any longer. He didn't look to the fountain of life. He didn't look to the one who created him. And this becomes the very source of our continuing condemnation because we no longer know who God is. We no longer look to the light. And again, Calvin, as he's reflecting in this passage, he says it's like a man who goes down to a river to draw water and yet never considers the source of where that stream comes from. And that's what we're like. We come to a river and we come we're looking for things, and yet we never consider where they come from. We never consider the source. We never consider the goodness that makes them any, have any benefit for us. But our hearts, they take it one step further. Because when, we, when God seeks to bring redemption, which is what we're talking about, and so sends the light back into the world, the light again is rejected, isn't it? Why does this happen? It's because Israel had forgotten the source. They had forgotten that where, where the stream came from. And they didn't know it when it was standing in front of them. But the gospel for us this morning is that in the midst of even the rejection of this light, even the midst of rejection, that Jesus bears the burden for our own rejection. So we had to, I had to describe for y'all the whole, the, whole, the, whole, the whole story of Genesis 1 through 3. I had to go all the way from the creation all the way to the fall. Because God iterates this curse to the, to the man and the woman. And what we see here is that Christ actually comes in 
to be the one who becomes rejected for us. In the fall, we were in the fall we lose our we lose our relationship with God. And what we have in Christ is Christ coming in saying, "Okay, that rejection I'm going to take for you." So the curse of the fall is laid on Christ. Isn't it amazing that God becomes man? That knowing despite his greatest possible condescension that we would still reject him, that we would still wrestle with him, that we would, we would still doubt his love, that we would, like Adam and Eve, decide that we know better. And yet, Christ comes, God sends his son, knowing not only a rejection of him, but he takes the rejection that's due for us. So that by grace we might receive him, and that by grace we might become children of the living God. Look what it says. As the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory of His glory, the Son of the Only Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, skipping to verse 16, we have all received grace upon grace. And you jump back to verse 12, and he says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Now, this is what Christmas is about. It's about the God giving grace upon grace for us. When God became man, it wasn't just something that he did for himself. He did it for us, to bring us to grace, to make us children of God. So this morning we have to just ask ourselves, do I really believe this all matters? Do I believe it all matters? Do I believe that it matters that Christ is about Christmas? I think the answer is simple. Because through all these things, the redemption accomplished by Christ as opposed to every other redemption that's attempted, is made effective. Y'all, who's your Redeemer today? Is it Jesus? As we, come to Christ, as we come to Christmas, that's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. Is our Redeemer Christ? Yeah, we all come, especially in the church, we come and we say every Christmas, that this Christmas is going to be different, right? That I'm not going to get absorbed into all the things. That I'm going to make it about Jesus. I'm going to bring my family before the Word. And yet, day after day, we feel ourselves getting sucked in so that we're only a day away from just having every other Christmas be the same, right? And losing our focus on Christ and forgetting our first love. And we know that another Christmas is so close to just passing us by just like it did the year before. Why does this happen to us? Why does it happen to us that when we have everything put before us, that we still reject it? How do we get sucked in? It's because we forget our Redeemer. Is your Redeemer the promised salvation of all creation? Or is it something else? Is it the one whose scripture foretold would recreate, restore, resurrect, and reconcile all things into their intended purpose? Or is it something else? Because I think the way that most of us live is that we are looking to something else. We're trusting and we're believing that other things are going to bring redemption to our lives. And we talk about it all the time, don't we? Because the way that we think about our jobs, the way that we think about each day is that if I could just get through this day or if this just happened, that things would be better for me. And we begin to put the, the, the power of redemption, we begin to believe that the power of redemption is in all these different things. That it's in your work, that's in your family, that's in your career. And that if we get to this place, that we'll no longer need, have need. Y'all, these things, again, they aren't bad. But what's evil about our hearts is that we take these good things and we make them ultimate. 
and they become enough for us so we don't need Christ. Now that's the threat of Christmas. Is that we see these things and we're going to them knowing there's something good in them we begin to make them better than Jesus is. Yeah, this is something we have to consider too because we teach this well. We, we have to consider how we relate this to our families. We teach our families, we teach our children, we teach those around us that life is about comfort, that life is about health, that life is in pleasure. And we tell our children that we have hopes for them and that we have aspirations. And we teach them, instead of looking to Christ, we teach them that this is what their hope is. That if you can get to a successful life, that you can have good health, that then you'll find hope, that then you'll find salvation, that then you'll have redemption. And y'all, that falls so short of the redemption that Christ wants for us. See, we seek to give them every opportunity right in life. And so doing, we make opportunities the real, the real hope for redemption for our children. And we fail to send them into the world equipped for the hope of redemption in Christ. There's no redemption apart from Christ. That's exactly what John is speaking to us this morning. There's no redemption apart from the light that's been revealed since the beginning of creation. Redemption is what we need, and that's what Christmas is all about. So what we found this morning, that the Word became flesh. The one who is with God became like us, and He takes on all the things, takes on all our dirtiness, takes on all our brokenness. That the God who made all things, who is the true light, who is with God in the beginning, becomes like us. The one who is very God of very God, he becomes born of a woman and is even laid in a a manger, which is a place where horses and pigs and different things would feed. That the God of all creation become in such humility and such brokenness for us because his hopes and his desires and his plans for redemption are so much greater than we can imagine. And God, and Jesus does what Adam and Eve failed to do when they were tempted. Adam and Eve had an option. They could crush the serpent and walk again with their God. But they didn't. But what Christ does and what God assures Adam and Eve of in that, in that very curse at the very beginning is that he will send one who does. Y'all, that's who our Christ is, the one who comes in. And though the serpent would strike him, though the serpent would beat him down, he would crush his head ultimately. That's why this is a time of celebration. See, I think in Christ, Christmas on the whole, I think it's some, one thing that we fail to do is actually celebrate enough. We fail to celebrate that what we're, we're looking at and what we're talking about is not just presents. We're talking about the gift of Christ. You know, each Sunday we step in to the Word as we look at these things. Y'all remember that our salvation is in Jesus. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, they came through Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. But He has made Him known. Now Christ has been made known to us so that grace and truth may be part of our lives. Christ. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this morning where we hear your word. Lord, we look to the hope of our salvation. 
Lord, direct our hearts to you. Direct our hearts to the joy that we have in Christ. And help us to not be caught up in the things of the world, Lord. Lord, and yet knowing that we will be, when we pray again, we ask for Christ to come to forgive us or to mediate for us so that the fullness of our salvation may be known each day anew, Lord, as we seek forgiveness. In your name we pray. Amen.